Obviously, we're going through parenting, uh, parenting in the Bible, and right now we're in the New Testament, and so we're going to be looking at a passage tonight out of Luke. Now, for many years, as I've driven north, I'm 35. When I get north of Denton, my, I, my mind starts thinking, okay, I, I'm looking for this. And around Sanger, if you look to the, on the west side of the road, there's a big mansion and some beautiful acreage down below it. And so for 30 plus years as I've driven north, I've always just kind of like, oh yeah, I wanna, I wanna see that. And so I look over there. Now I'm not looking over there because it's a beautiful mansion, because it's not. But what's intrigued me is the fact that this mansion, as beautiful as it is, and maybe you know what I'm talking about, it's never been completed. In fact, for years there was no doors, no windows. It was just a shell of a mansion on a beautiful hill with some beautiful acreage. And I think the intent was to be a beautiful horse property. And I'm a horse guy, so I was like, man, that'd be a beautiful property to have. But my mind goes, what happened here? Why wasn't it finished? And then uh, not too long ago, someone actually purchased it and they started working on it again. They put stone on it and they stopped after that. So they completed more of the exterior, but it stopped. The house was not finished. And if you're like me, you're probably driving by there going, what actually happened? I mean, did they not plan well? Did they not think about the costs so that they could actually complete the task? Did they not plan well? You see, Jesus uses that very analogy in Luke 14, about someone who hasn't truly counted the cost and they weren't able to finish it. And so like in Sanger, I I just feel like that house on a hill is almost like a billboard saying, hey, (laughs) I didn't plan well, I can't finish. And Jesus talks about that in Luke 14. So before we read, let me set the context here. We're going to start in verse 25. But see, Jesus had already gained popularity. People were following him. And as you see, it starts out, it talks about large crowds. But Jesus was able to look at the crowd and go, wait a minute, these people are following me. In fact, they would say they're my disciples. But he knew they weren't. And he was going to challenge them. Because we see throughout Scripture in a number of places, we even talked about it on Sunday in 1 John, where we see people that say they're believers and they're not. And so Jesus wants to make a bold statement to them and say, hey, if you're a true disciple, it's going to look like this. And so he talks about really the high cost, the high cost of being a disciple. So if you would, follow with me in Luke 14. We're going to start in verse 25. It says, now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, 
While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Therefore, salt is good, but even if salt has become tasteless, with what it will be seasoned, it is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, Jesus was making some strong statements to find out if you're a true disciple. And we can even look to today and look at the statistics. You're familiar with them, the, the high number of people that say, yes, I believe in God. Or they even say that I'm a Christian. But when you look at some of the other polls that are taken, how many are actually committed to going to church and spending time in the word? This is a call to us too. We need to examine our hearts. Are we tr- a true disciple? And in this passage, he lists really three high costs of being a disciple. And we're going to skip the first one because that's where we're going to spend our time. But the first one's there in verse 26. But let's look at verse 27. Verse 27, it says, Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, Jesus is saying, you have to deny yourself. If you're a true disciple, you will deny yourself. And we also see him make that comment in Mark 9.23, and Matthew 10.38, and Mark 8.34, and many other scriptures where you're going to follow Christ, you have to deny yourself. There's also another high cost of being a disciple. It's listed there in verse 33. He says, so then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. See, we have to have a, a heart, a willingness to give up everything for Christ. Now, we're all familiar with the rich young ruler and how that conversation went. And he said, you have to give up everything. He knew the idol in his heart was money. Doesn't mean that we have to give up all our possessions, but he was telling that to him because that was the idol in his heart. He wasn't willing to give up everything for Christ. So we have to, Jesus calls them out. You have to be willing to deny yourself. You have to be willing to give up everything. So let's go back to the first one. Let's figure out what the first one says. In verse 26, if you go back and look at that with me, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, what? He cannot be my disciple. Hate? Wait. When you read that, you're kind of going, wait a minute, that doesn't quite match everything else in Scripture. Aren't we supposed to love others? What are we supposed to do with that verse when it says we're supposed to hate? So to be a true disciple, we're supposed to hate our parents and our kids? Isn't this a class for young families about how to love our kids? doesn't seem to match the rest of Scripture. So what do we do? Anytime we come across a passage in Scripture and it's difficult, what do we do? We go to passages that are more clear because we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. So when we come across a passage that's less clear, we go to passages that are more clear. So we use the clearer passage, passages to interpret the harder passages. So we need to do that here. So let's go to one that we all know, the greatest commandment of the second greatest commandment. What are, the, what, what are the two greatest commandments? Love God. Love others. Okay. Well, wait a minute. If we're to love others, but here it says we're to hate. Okay, that doesn't seem to match. So what about something we've been studying on Sunday? It says first, in 1 John 2, 11, it talks about he who hates his brother is in darkness. So here John is saying that if you hate your brother, you're not a true disciple. So obviously we can't interpret 
verse 26 as that we really need to hate them. But there's a really good passage that really helps us, it's the best passage to help us uh, interpret this, and it's in Matthew 10. And verse 37 says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And see, that, that conversation in Matthew is in the same t- conversation about being a disciple. So it's the same context. So he's saying, not that we are to hate. He's using a, what, a hyperbole to show the contrast. There should be a huge contrast that we love God so much that it looks like we hate all these other relationships. So that's how we should interpret that. We should have a supreme love for God. It doesn't mean we don't love others. So after looking at these other passages to help us interpret that this really is a hyperbole, a great contrast, we realize that there is no close second. So the requirement of a true disciple is what? There on your outline, it is a utmost love for God. That is the requirement of, of a true disciple, an utmost love for God. And if you look at the first part of verse 26, it says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, mother, wife, children, brothers, and sisters. So we are to love God more than anyone else. That means our parents, our spouse, our kids. And that's really counterculture because our culture says kids should come first. And sometimes they'll even say you know, the spouse will come second after the kids. No, God comes first. Then what's the last part? Uh, verse 26. Yes, even his own life. We are to love God more than ourselves. We are to love God more than ourselves. I think that's the hardest one. We don't struggle with loving ourselves. And I think that's the hardest one for us to live out. So that's the requirement of a true disciple. We are to have an utmost love for God, and we're to love God more than anyone else. We're to love God more than ourselves. So why don't we take the time to evaluate how we're doing in our love for God? So if I were to say that I love something, let's say I love the Dallas Cowboys, okay? But my wife chuckled. Because what if I never watch a game? Okay. What if I never go to a game? What if I never sit down and have a conversation about the Cowboys? What if I don't read statistics? I don't watch anything online. I don't wear a jersey. I never talk about the Cowboys, but I keep saying I love the Cowboys. You're going to see that there is a disconnect there. Because if I love something, I'm going to be spending time doing it, right? So how are we doing in spending time with God? Do you spend time with God? Now, when spending time with God, what does that mean? Well, it's us communicating with God. So what what does communication look like? There's a talking and a listening, right? Well, how do we talk and listen to God? God speaks through what? His word. We got to spend time in his word. So are you spending time in the word? Now, how do we communicate to God? Prayer, right. So how are you doing in those two areas? In John 14, 15, it says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Also in 1 Samuel 15, 22, you're probably familiar with it, it says, To obey is better than sacrifice. So when we're evaluating our love for God, we need to consider, 
do you obey his commands? If you're not obedient to God and you're not trying to obey his commands, it means, I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't sin because we're, we're not going to be sinless on this side of eternity. But if you are constantly disobeying God and you know what the right thing to do is, but you're not willing to do it, you need to question, are you a true disciple? Another way to evaluate ourselves, how we're in our love for God, is to uh, consider the passage in John 21. I love this interaction in John 21, there in 15 through 27. You see Jesus and Peter interacting. And it's after Jesus has been crucified, he's resurrected, and he's talking to Peter, and he goes, hey, Peter, do you love me? Of course, Peter, yeah, yes, Lord, I love you. What's his response? What? Yeah, but, and, but what, what did Jesus say to him? Yeah, yeah, tend to my sheep. Jesus asked again, Peter, do you love me? Take care of my sheep. What's Jesus saying there? Peter, if you love me, you're going to take care of my people. Peter, if you love me, you're going to love God's people. You're going to love and serve them. And so that's a great way to, to, to look at, do we love God? Do you love and serve others? Do you love and serve others? In Matthew 6, 21 and Luke 34, they're very similar. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think two really good practical indicators of where our heart is is how do we spend our time and our money. So how do you spend your time and your money? If you were to look at those two things, those two things God has entrusted to you, is there any indication about where your heart is, where your treasure is? So let me ask you a question. You don't need to answer it. I just want you to think about this. What if someone were to come into your home and not say anything, not ask any questions, you don't talk to them, but they're just going to sit there and observe. They're going to sit there in the morning, watch how you interact with your family and listen to the conversations. They're going to go to work and, and watch how you interact with your coworkers, employees, or whatever, or interact with your kids. They're going to watch when you come home and see what you do in the evening, how you conduct yourself at the meal, what you do with your spare time. Let's say they were to observe you for a week. What would they conclude about what they saw just by observing how you act? Would it tell them that you love God supremely just by the way you live your life? You see, our love for God should be foremost. It should be highest, incomparable, matchless, predominant, surpassing, ultimate, all-consuming, unequaled, unmatched, unmost. See, after, evaluate, after evaluating how we're doing at God Supremely, we need to consider how do we grow? How do we grow in our love for God? I think it starts with a right view of yourself and a right view of God. So how do we grow? A right, we have to have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. So how do we do this? How do we get this right view of God, a right view of ourselves and a right view of God? We need to go back to the basic. We need to meditate on the gospel. We need to meditate on the fact that a holy God, a holy God that is sinless, we have sinned against the holy God, and what do we deserve? We deserve eternal punishment. We deserve death. 
And he didn't have to save us, but he chose to. The very creator, he sent his son, the very creator of the universe, to become fully man and fully God, to live the life that we should have lived, but died the death that we deserved so that we can be reconciled to a holy God. That's amazing. That ought to humble you. You ought to think about that daily and meditate on that. In Luke 7, I just really like this passage. If you would, go to Luke 7. And I think this helps us to have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God as well. We're going to start in verse, let's say 41. Jesus is having a conversation with Simon. It starts off there in verse 41. And Jesus is going to tell a parable here. A money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Well, Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Then Jesus turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Here's the key verse. For this reason I say to you, her sins which are many have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. We are all wretched sinners. I am a wretched sinner. I know I have been forgiven much. When we truly realize the depth of our depravity and the depth of our sin and that God chose us and sought us out, that ought to humble us and we will realize that we have been forgiven much. And when we are forgiven much, we should love much. That's how to think rightly. How to have a right view of ourselves and a right view of God. So what are two other ways to help us grow in your love for God? We kind of mentioned it already in the evaluating portion, but we have to be spending time in his word. And we have to be meditating out throughout the day, so spend time in his word and meditate on it. But also spending time in prayer. If we're not spending time in his word and spending time praying, we will not grow. Showing up to go to church once a week will not grow you. You have to be spending time in the word and in praying on your own. So we look at this. Wow, it seems like a lot of hard work, but we should all be working hard to grow in our love for God because Jesus is clearly communicating this passage. There is a high cost to be a true disciple, and it's going to be a lifelong journey. Now, remember a few moments ago, I said, what if someone were to go in your home and watch you all week? You know what? Someone is in your home and has been watching you all this week and the week before. That's your kids. Your kids are watching you, and you are teaching them something. And so we are to be teaching our children to love God, not just love God, but to love God more than anything else. And so how do we do that? So training your children to love God. How do we train our kids to love God? First of all, we have to be an example because they are watching. So we're either going to be a good example or a bad example of loving God. And they're watching us make decisions. They see the priorities in our life. 
Do, we see the, do they see a priority of Scripture, of the Bible? Do they see a priority of church? Do they see the priority of service and of fellowship? Do they see the priority of evangelizing a lost world? So we need to be setting an example. But what else do we need to be doing? Well, in Deuteronomy 6, we spent some time in that last fall really going over that passage. But I do want to go back because I think it's good for us to look at that again. So let's look at Deuteronomy 6, and I'm going to start in verse 5. It says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your might. These words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall what? Teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. That's right, just only when they sit, right? No, what else? And when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What's the point there? We should be teaching just part of the time? No, we're supposed to be teaching all the time. We should be teaching them all day, every day. We should be teaching them all day, every day, throughout everything. So, when it comes to your children, what are you most concerned about? What is your focus? Is it their education? What about college? Is that a, is that a focus? Is that what you're most concerned about? Maybe you want them to go to the same college you went to. Maybe it's a career. Maybe that's what's most important in your home and getting your kids, um, training your kids about, hey, you want to make sure they're a doctor, a lawyer, whatever, their career. Maybe it's you just want to make sure they're, they're successful, or maybe you just want to make sure they're happy. On Sunday mornings in the children's ministry, the kids each week memorize a catechism. And hopefully you're familiar with that. If not, there is a catechism book of the question and answer that they will be memorizing each week. So there's a, you can find these books at the Welcome Center. They're also online, and they're also in the bulletin. Now, one of the catechisms that I want to ask, and I bet most of you know this one, but there's a catechism. What is the chief end of man? And so what's the answer? What is the chief end of man? That's right, to enjoy God and glorify him forever. Now, here's my question. Is that your desire for your kids, that they glorify God and enjoy him forever? Are you being diligent and pouring into them to teach them to love God, that they glorify God? That's what we should be doing. Now, wow, that's a lot of hard stuff. So when you look back at this, you may be going, wow, Chip, that's, that's really hard. That's a lot of stuff. I feel like I don't have time for anything else. But Jesus calls out that the cost of discipleship is very high. He wants everything. We just talked about those three. We really focused on one. But Jesus wants everything from you. He wants your highest love. He wants you to deny yourself and be willing to give up everything. Now, that, what's interesting is grace is free. You don't earn your salvation. Grace is free, but to be a disciple will cost you everything. But the beautiful thing is you will gain everything. It's a wonderful thing. So as we reflect back on this lesson, and we reflect back on the cost we don't want to be that mansion that starts something and not able to finish it. Have you truly calculated the cost of being a true disciple? And maybe you 
if you're being honest with yourself and you've been taking the time to evaluate yourself, you may actually say, hey, Chip, I, I profess to believe in Jesus Christ, but I'm not a true disciple. Well, my hope and prayer is that you'll not only believe, but you will repent and make Jesus Lord. And if you are a true disciple, maybe you look at this and go, hey, I'm, I'm doing okay, but I need to do better. I hope you are encouraged to spend more time on the word, more time to think, and spend more time thinking rightly about God and in training your children so that you are a faithful disciple. Because what you don't want to be is that person in Matthew 7, there in 21 through 23, you're familiar with it, where it says, Lord, Lord, did I not do these things in your name? And Jesus' response, he says, I never knew you. You don't want to be that one. You don't want to be a false disciple that does things in Christ's name and really not know him. So to end our time, I'd like to read out of the Valley of Vision. If you're not familiar with it, it's a collection of Puritan prayers. It's available in our bookstore, and I highly recommend it. If you don't have it, buy it. It's a great thing to add to your quiet time. And I'm going to read one entitled, called Devotion. Now, as I read it, I want you to think about the words in here that indicate the heart of a true disciple that's willing to give up everything and has a deep, deep love for God. It is my greatest, noblest pleasure to be acquainted with thee and with my rational, immortal soul. It is sweet and entertaining to look into my being when all my powers and passions are united and engaged in pursuit of thee. When my soul longs and passionately breathes after conformity to thee, and the full enjoyment of thee. No hours pass away with so much pleasure as those spent in communion with, with thee and with my heart. Oh, how desirable, how profitable to the Christian life is a spirit of holy watchfulness and godly jealousy over myself when my soul is afraid of nothing except grieving and offending thee, the blessed God, my Father and friend, whom I then love and long to please rather than be happy in myself, knowing as I do that this is a pious temper worthy of the highest ambition and closest pursuit of intelligent creatures and holy Christians. May my joy derive from glorifying and delighting thee. I long to fill all my time for thee, whether at home or in the way, to place all my concerns in thy hands, to be entirely at thy disposal, having no will or interest of my own. Help me to live for thee forever, to make thee my last and only end, so that I may never more in one instance love my sinful self. I pray that you will grow in your love for God and have an utmost love for God and that you will be found to be a true disciple. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for your word. And may we make an honest assessment of our hearts as to whether we are a true disciple or not. And may we be uh, committed to spending time in your word and in growing in our knowledge of you and, our, and most importantly, our love for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.